seated. For God is our refuge and strength, always ready to help in times of trouble. So we will not fear when earthquakes come and the mountains crumble into the sea. Let the oceans roar and foam. Let the mountains tremble as the waters surge. A river brings joy to the city of God, the sacred home of the Most High. God dwells in that city. It cannot be destroyed. From the very break of day, God will protect it. The nations are in chaos and their kingdoms crumble. God's voice thunders and the earth melts. The Lord of heaven's armies are here among us. The God of Israel is our fortress. Come see the glorious works of the Lord. See how he brings destruction upon the world. He causes wars to end throughout the earth. He breaks the bow and snaps the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be honored by every nation. I will be honored throughout the world. The Lord of heaven's armies is here among us. The God of Israel is our fortress. Do you know that God? Do you know that God? Or do you just know some things about him? Is what you know about God hearsay or have you experienced him? My prayer is that you would experience God, not just today, but that you would experience God every single day of your life so that you, like the psalmist there in Psalm 46, would know that those things indeed are the truth. Today I'm going to be teaching from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there with me. I'm going to, again, unpack the first 11 verses there. And we're, we're wrapping up a series today that we've just been calling Vision. And over the last several weeks, we've been talking about a couple of different things. We've been talking about the Great Commission of Jesus, which is our mission as a church. And... Uh, we um, l- let me just let me read. Can can I read that mission to you? The great the great commission. It's in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter twenty eight. It's in verses sixteen through twenty. Jesus says part of as a part of his last words to his disciples and his last words to the church. And some people even call them the first words of the church. Then the eleven disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some of them doubted, which again is one of my favorite lines in the whole Bible that some of them doubted. They've seen Jesus cast out demons, they've seen him raise people back from the dead, they've seen him heal people, literally give people their eyesight back. They've seen Jesus feed thousands of people with basically, you know, a fish fillet combo from McDonald's. <laughs> and after all of that, there's still some people in the group going, I don't know, I, I need to see some more. I just don't know if I can really believe that this is truly the Messiah. I, I, that, I guess that's preacher humor. You guys didn't get it? Okay. Jesus came and told his disciples, and here it is. He said, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I've given you, and be sure of this, that I'm with you even to the very end of the days or the end of the age. That's the, that's the mission of the church. 
And it doesn't matter who the preacher is. It doesn't matter what season the church is in. It doesn't, um, it's not something that changes over time. Uh, it's not something that changes from preacher to preacher or from place to place. The mission of the church, whether it's this church or the church across town or the church across the world, the mission is the same. But as I study church history, it would seem to me that there are times in the life of the church when God gives, and I don't know a better way to say this, but fresh vision for how the Great Commission is lived out. And I believe that, you know, 11 plus years ago that God gave Karen and I a vision for how we should live out the Great Commission here in the Rocky River community of Cabarrus County. And this is the way, um, this is the way that we express the Great Commission in our community. It is to give people the best opportunity possible to become fully committed, growing followers of Christ. And I'm always trying to think of ways to say that a little bit better. And uh, this may be an even better way of saying it. It is to know God and to make him known. Today, my prayer is that after we unpack these 11 or so verses in John chapter 8, that you would know God a little bit better and that you would be challenged to make him known to other people. I'm not going to ask you guys to stand up this morning as I read because I'm going to do this. Um, I'm going to preach and teach this morning in, in my favorite sort of style. And that is I'm just going to unpack the passage as we go. And so if you've got a Bible, again, you're welcome to just look along. We also have the scriptures up on the screen and they're going to do their best back there to follow me. And uh, so let's just jump in. Are you guys ready? Are you ready? I haven't preached in like really two and a half weeks because a couple of weeks ago we had John Quast in here, a missionary, so I only got to preach like a half a sermon. So I've got you for a couple hours today, right? Okay, now you're laughing. Here we go. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early in the morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered and he sat down and taught them. And as he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, and they put her in front of the crowd. Now, let me, let me use this as just an opportunity to make the setup here to let you know exactly what's going on. In chapter 7, in the verses that immediately precede this passage right here, there's kind of a, a religious argument and, and maybe not so much an argument, but probably an argument where Jesus and Nicodemus and other members of this court of religious people or this big gathering of religious people, they're arguing over some of the finer points of God or theology, the study of God, talking about the things of God. And their discussion has gone kind of late into the evening and they all split up the Pharisees and other religious leaders, they go their way. Jesus goes into the Mount of Olives, and the idea is that they were going to gather up the next day. So Jesus shows up early that next morning. He hasn't been there very long when a crowd of people 
gathers around him. And so it would seem that the Pharisees and the other religious leaders the night before, when they went home, they didn't go home to just get some rest. They went home and began to plot against Jesus. And so they've put together this plan that we're going to unpack over the next few verses. But the plan begins with trying to trap Jesus. Again, I'll say more about that in a couple of minutes. But as a part of the trap, on their way to Jesus to get back into this religious discord, they stop and pick up a woman uh, who is in an adulterous affair. And we don't have any of the seedy details that I know that Americans love to hear, but John wasn't concerned so much with those, so we don't have all of the details But these religious leaders show up and they put this woman who has been caught in this affair in front of Jesus. Their goal is to trap him, but I don't don't want to go there just yet because I want to help you understand, again, a little bit more about what's going on here. The religious leaders hate Jesus. Now you need to know that Jesus is one of them in a way. Jesus is a religious leader. There are places in the scriptures where he's referred to as rabbi. So he's a teacher of the law. He's probably a Pharisee. And the other Pharisees, the other religious leaders, they hate Jesus. And that's the, that's the only way to say it. They hate him to the point where they're trying to do anything that they can to discredit him. They hate him for a couple of reasons. Number one, they hate him because they don't agree with his theology. And theology is just a fancy way of saying they don't like the things that he's teaching about God. Now, it comes down to the view of God. The Pharisees were interested in the rules of God. And they would use the rules to just pound and ground the life out of people. They were interested in all of the customs and um, all of the rituals that quite honestly had been drained of their meaning. And they, they, just, um, they were just interested in, in the rules. Jesus didn't talk so much about rules. When Jesus talked about God and people, he talked about them in the sense of relationship. The religious leaders are all about the religious rules, but Jesus, this Pharisee, one of their own that they thought was a heretic, talked all about having a relationship with God. I heard a preacher talking about this just yesterday because, you know, we preachers, we listen to other preachers. I know that sounds really exciting to you guys, but... Um, but it can it can be. And uh, he was talking about, I believe he was in Indonesia, and he was sitting outside of uh, a Buddhist monastery, and he was having a conversation with two or three Buddhist priests. And the Buddhist priests were trying to explain to this pastor that I was listening to, this Christian pastor, 
They're trying to explain that there's not just one way to God. Even though Jesus says in John 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh before or cometh unto the Father except that he come by me. They're trying to say that there are many ways to God. And so this pastor said, so, so let, me try, let me try to say this um, like, like you guys mean it. He said, it sounds like you guys are saying that God sits up on this big mountain and all the people are at the base of this mountain. And you can go any path up the mountain that you want to to get to God and any path is fine as long as the end result is that we all get to God. And these Buddhist priests said, yeah, that's absolutely it. You're listening, you, you, you get this. And then this Christian pastor said, I will imagine it this way, that God is sitting up on the mountain and all the people are at the base of the mountain and God comes down from the mountain to the people. He said, that's the gospel. That's the gospel of John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, the son in a way of speaking came down from the mountain that those who would believe in him would never die, but would live forever. These religious leaders were all about keeping the rules so that you can get yourself, you can work yourself up to God. But Jesus is talking about people actually having a relationship with God and God has come down from the mountain. And then there's the issue of just old-fashioned jealousy. Have any of you ever gone to a church that you just, well, this is not fair, I shouldn't, I shouldn't ask this. Most of us have been to a church before that we didn't want to go back to. Some, some of you are here for the first time today and you may feel that way already. I'm here and I don't know if I want to come back to this crazy place. Um, but you, you've been to a church where you didn't want to go back. You're, you're there and it just seems boring and it's dry. Or, or maybe you've gone and you, you liked it okay, but you try to get your kids there and they just cry because they don't want to go because they feel like it's boring and that sort of thing. That's the way most people felt like when they would go to the services that these religious leaders would hold. They were boring and the people would only go because the religious authorities were holding this over their head. They felt like they had to go. They were sort of forced to be there. But Jesus didn't have a synagogue of his own. Sure, there were times when he would teach in a synagogue, but he didn't have his own place. There wasn't a building somewhere where he could hang out a shingle and say, hey, I'll be here on Saturday mornings at 9.30 and 11, or you can come catch me at a Wednesday night service. He didn't have anything like that, but people would find him wherever he was. If it was a hillside in Galilee, if it was a a dusty road somewhere in Capernaum, if it was out by the Sea of Galilee, I mean, people would just gather in troves. They hear Jesus teach, and here they are early in the morning. We don't know what morning, we don't know what time, but Jesus is going to be teaching, and so people just come, they just gather up, they crowd in to hear Jesus teach. And these religious leaders just wanted to be done with them. Let me read a little further. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman is caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says, stone her. What do you say? Now, there are a couple things here. One is when they talk about the law of Moses, they're referring to actually two laws 
in the in the Torah or the first five books of the Bible. Um, it's a it's a part of a verse in Leviticus and a part of a verse in Deuteronomy, and they just kind of put them together to say whatever they want to say. And and most of us are guilty of that, aren't we? We take the Bible out of context. We use it in ways that's only convenient for us, and that's what these religious leaders do on this occasion. And so they, they bring this woman before Jesus, put her here and say, okay, because they think they've got a, an airtight argument. We've got Jesus now where we want him. Uh, Jesus, what do we do? The law says, and you're a teacher of the law, remember that. Uh, the law says kill her. And it's almost like they're saying, but you don't really teach the law. What do you say? Uh, Let me flesh out the trap. The trap is that if Jesus says, well, the law of Moses says stoner, uh, the people couldn't say much about it. They would just have to go along with it. But Jesus was considered a man of the people. There's something that's different about him, and they are coming, and they're eating him up. And if Jesus says, yeah, go ahead and follow through with what the law says, go ahead and kill her, um, these people, again, they're not going to have much to say about it, but they just won't come back to Jesus. And so in a sense, it'll be the end of Jesus' ministry because people won't come out in these big crowds of people to listen to him anymore. On the other hand, if Jesus would have said, you know, I don't know what Moses was smoking when he wrote that down. Maybe I shouldn't say it like that. That's the way I heard it this week. Uh, I don't know what Moses was thinking when he wrote this down. Um, But, you know, this is old. And I I think, and you can hear people say this about the Bible today, can't you? When it comes to those really pet sins that we have in our society and culture— You know, if Jesus were here today, he would say it's perfectly fine to live this lifestyle or that style. Um, If Jesus would have said, listen, if Moses were here today, you know, he would probably say, "Don't, don't kill somebody that's caught in adultery. He might just say, whip them or something like that. Or I don't even think Moses would think it's a big deal. Just, just let this thing go. They would have branded Jesus as a heretic. And instead of wanting to stone this woman to death, they may have very likely pelted Jesus with the rocks that they're standing there holding. But either way, they would win. Now I want you to get a little clearer picture of these religious people who are standing here. The shame of this moment is that these religious men who, you know, I'll bet you that if we could get beyond their religious baggage and sort of get them outside of these sparring um, experiences with Jesus, they're probably pretty decent guys. But as religious leaders, it never dawns on them to help this woman. 
they are blinded by what they want, by what they want to see happen. And so when they go to this this woman's house or the man's house or wherever she's in bed with, you know, with someone else. And, and how do you even get her out of bed? I mean, how, how does this whole thing even happen? I mean, do they kick down the door? Do, do, do they already know that she's in there having an, an affair? Where is the guy at? Does he get to just run away or is he standing there too? I mean, if you're a woman, you've got to be a little bit ticked about this, don't you? Because, I mean, there's, she's only half of the problem here. There's another half of the sin. And what do you say? Do you grab her by the hair? Do you yank her out? I mean, what did this moment really look like? Whatever it looked like, these religious teachers, it never dawned on them to say something like, Beautiful daughter of Zion. Why are you living in this sin? God created you for so much more than what you're realizing right now. Make some changes. It, it, never, it never occurred to them that they ought to try to restore her because they didn't care about her. Religion doesn't care about people. It cares about rules. And so this woman there before Jesus, while it seems like a pitiful thing to us, and we all just kind of in some ways want to just turn around and look the other way because we don't want to watch all of this because we've been where the adulterous woman is. Maybe not in the sin of adultery, but we all know that we're sinners, right? You do know you're a sinner? I'm not telling anybody this for the first time, am I? Another nervous laugh. Maybe I am telling somebody for the first time. We're all sinners. We've been right there where this adulterous woman was, so we kind of just want to look away a little bit and maybe get this behind us. But to the religious guys there, this woman, she's nothing but an object lesson. She's a prop. She's just a part of the story. You know, I'll bet you that these religious leaders were hall monitors or bathroom monitors or safety patrol kids when they were in school. You know, they, they think that their position at... John, John, were you on safety patrol? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Because that's how you guys look at each other. All right. But they think it's their job to be the religious monitors. That they just sit around watching everybody and they've got a notepad and a pen and they're just writing down everybody's sins, and they're like, oh, man, you're going to pay for that. Oh, you've done these other things. We're going to stone you. They, they think that's their job. Never a thought that, hey, could we restore this woman? A little further. They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down and began to write in the dust with his finger. And uh, this is one of the great mysteries of the Bible, is to think about, now, what did Jesus write? And, and there's all sorts of speculation, and my speculation is going to be a, a guess, just like anybody else, because we don't have a record of exactly what he wrote down. Some people think he was just killing a little bit of time, like he's thinking of an answer. So he needs a second to get his thoughts together. Of course, this is God here, so... I'm pretty sure he already had a response. 
Um, some people think that, um, that Jesus is just embarrassed by this, that he is a Pharisee, and so he's embarrassed of the other Pharisees. And um, maybe he's just letting a little bit of time pass so that they can actually hear the accusation and experience what is going on around them so that maybe they'll change their mind or they'll just see the absurdity of all of this. But here, here's, here's my favorite idea. It's the Armenian translation that um, Jesus began to make a list of sins in the dust. You know, that he's writing down the sins of the men who are gathered up there holding the rocks. And so after he's made an exhaustive list, John says that um, while they kept demanding an answer, Jesus stood up and said, All right, have your way, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he stooped down again and wrote in the dirt. Now that must have been a heck of a moment, don't you think? I wonder if they did something similar to what religious people do today. And I'm talking to some of you here in the room. I'm sure. I'm not looking at anybody in particular right now. You know, you measure your commitment to Christ or your own righteousness by the people you do life with. And so we have a way of thinking that we're, you know, better than we really are because we're always measuring ourselves up to each other. And so you're like, well, I'm not as bad a sinner as so-and-so, so therefore that makes me righteous. Listen, if you want to know how righteous you really are, stop comparing yourself to me and start comparing yourself to Jesus. He's the standard, not me, not Travis, not Eric, not Donnie, not Teresa, not any other leader in this church. But, you know, maybe they did a little inventory and they started looking around like, you know, at their own guys there holding these rocks and who's it going to be <laughs> and they're all like don't look at me man because I know what I thought when I saw the woman in bed with that other man I know my own said don't look at me I can't throw the first rock when the accusers heard this they slipped away one by one beginning with the oldest because he's probably the leader until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. And so you're, we're still hanging on the edge of our seats here uh, because what's next? What, what happens next? Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I go and sin no more. Now, just because I'm closing my Bible don't mean we're at the end, okay? So don't get too excited and don't check out on me. 
Don't, don't check out because that's not the little they lived happily ever after stamp on the end of a nice little story. Um, before I, I wrap it all up, uh, I, I want to talk to our staff and our ministry team leaders and other volunteers that we have in the church. That, of course, everybody can listen. You don't have to tune out on me if you're not a volunteer or a leader or something like that. I want, I want you listening too. But there are some things that are not here that bother me a little bit. You know, Eric, there's no band. There's, there's no Billy Graham-style come-forward invitation. So there's no, there's no band or worship leader there to sing a few verses of Just As I Am. In fact, Jesus doesn't even give an invitation. Um, this woman didn't come to Jesus on her own. She was dragged there. It, it wasn't a friend who brought her to Jesus. You know, and we say all the time at Rocky River, hey, bring your friends. Bring your friends to Jesus. You invest in the people in your life and then invite them to church. You, you invest and invite and we'll tell them about Jesus. It didn't work this way. This woman was forced to come to Jesus. She finds forgiveness, but she never asked for it. She never repented of her sins either. And after Jesus said, then I don't condemn you either, and that's the same as saying, I forgive you of your sins. He doesn't say, now, listen, when you leave here, here's what you need to do. You, we're going to send you some follow-up materials in the mail. And we, we want to help you find a good Bible-believing church or synagogue, as it were, we want to help you get into a place of worship and you need to find a place to volunteer and serve. You need to get into a life group. He doesn't say any of those things. He doesn't get her enrolled in a discipleship program. There's no 101, 201, 301, 401 class the way we have at Rocky River. I mean, there's not, there's not any of those things. But Jesus... Um, does not give her a get-out-of-hell-free card either. He does forgive her of her sins, but she walks away with a challenge. Jesus says to her, go and sin no more. And that's not just a nice little way of saying, so long, see you in heaven. He says, go and sin no more. He's saying... Now that you've been forgiven, don't go back to the sin that you were living in. Now that you've been forgiven of your sins, there should be some change in your life. And not just a little bit of change, but a radical change. Head to toe, front to back, inside and out. There ought to be real change now in your life. Jesus says your sins are forgiven. Now go and change. And that's what I'm going to leave you with today. I can't absolve you of your sins. You could confess everything to me, and I'm not the one who forgives sins.
I mean, I can forgive you as a pastor, but that doesn't mean anything in the presence of the Lord. But I do challenge you with the same words of Jesus, and I'm pointing my finger to go and sin no more. Be willing to let God change you. Change doesn't happen in a day. It doesn't happen even in a moment. It doesn't happen in the course of one Sunday. It doesn't happen just during one series of sermons, but it does happen over time. And I think that what Jesus would say to us today is, be open, be willing, be yielded, and let me make the changes. Let me say this too, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray, and we're going to sing one more song and be dismissed. You need to know this about God. Two things, really, you need to know. One is the whole story of the adulterous woman and the law of Moses and the stoning to death, that is there in the Bible. But it wasn't just for the woman. It was for the man too. And it was specifically for a virgin. Now this is probably another sermon for another day, but I want you to know that God doesn't just look at your sin with a wink and a nod. Like, don't worry about it. I know, it's all right. You, hey, you sinned, don't we all? Well, he wouldn't say that, but don't worry about your sin. But the second thing you need to know is that he doesn't want to hold the sin against you. That's not his ultimate goal. Most people, it's because most of us grew up with religious leaders similar to these Pharisees who teach us that God just wants to kick the tar out of somebody and he enjoys it, that he's a cosmic hall monitor and he can't wait to write down your name and all of your wrong. The rest of the gospel is that Jesus didn't come to rub your sins in. He came to rub them out. And that's why they call the gospel good news. Let's stand together. Let's bow for prayer. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for your word. You know, I'm... I'm, I'm not naive... And I'm not stupid. I know that it can be a challenge to read your word and understand it. But I'm so grateful for stories like this one. That teach us a little more about you and who you are and what you want for our lives. God, I feel like I can stand here as a pastor and say 
after reading and studying the scriptures and, and not taking everything else into account, but just the story that we've considered this morning. That what you really want to do in our lives and to do for us is to set us free from our sins. From the guilt and the shame and the oppression of our sins that we seem to be held slave to. I thank you for Jesus and that we can know because of him, we can know what it's like to be forgiven. And where the chains are broken and we are indeed set free. God, I'm not going to say an invitation type prayer today. But, but instead, I just want to pray for those here this morning in particular who recognize their own sin for what it is. And maybe it is the sin of adultery or maybe it's, maybe it's something else. It doesn't have to be adultery. It, it, it can be any sin that weighs us down and, and guilts us and oppresses us. But I pray for the ones this morning who really feel a sin burden in their lives. That they would just be able to say where they are right now, God, I give you my sin. God, I give you my sin. And I pray right now that we would receive your forgiveness. And that we would accept your challenge to go and sin no more. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Eric, I know we don't have a song planned for the end of the service. But I'd like to do a little bit of My Chains Are Gone, Amazing Grace. Will you do that? And here's, here's what I want to ask you to do. I want you to sing, and, I, and again, I don't think I'm going to do the whole song. But I want you to sing this one more time today and, and let it be a prayer. M- maybe instead of just singing the song, you need to speak to God and say, God, today I'm letting you have my sin. And today I'm going to take your challenge to the adulterous one, but I'm going to take it personally. I'm going to take it right in my heart. And I, I'm going to take this challenge to go and sin no more, which means I'm going to be willing to open up my life and let you make changes anywhere in my life that you see fit. I'm yours. You just have your way in my life. And then, uh, Eric, when you're ready, you just uh, close in prayer and dismiss, okay? God bless you guys. I love you. Amazing grace How sweet the sun Saved a wretch like me